The word of God from 1 Samuel. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Nina. Would you please remain standing a moment longer as we ask the Lord to illumine this ancient passage for our hearts. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these covenant promises. Thank you for the strangeness of them. Help us, Lord, to lean in. And Lord, this morning, I don't know where we all find ourselves, maybe distracted, um, maybe joyful, But we ask, Lord, that you would be so kind 
to open up the eyes of our hearts and illumine the scriptures so that we might see you and love you. We pray this to the glory of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Again, if you didn't hear the first time, my name's Ronnie, senior pastor here. And happy Mother's Day, mamas. Um, we are continuing in this sermon series on 2 Samuel, and it's subtitled, Acquiring a Taste for God as Our King. And, you know, for the last couple of weeks, we talked about how so many of these passages are redemptively disturbing. And the idea is that they help fine-tune our longing for a world where God is our ruler. And so we're at this point in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, we're well into David's story, uh, where he has finally united all of the followers of Saul, the first king, and, uh, and then also with his own followers. And so he is now the king of all of the tribes of Israel for the first time. And he has recently established the, the new capital in the city of Jerusalem. And last week we saw the, the celebration and the pain of moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And, and if you'll remember this, this is the physical symbol of God's power and presence And it's now where it's supposed to be. And uh, we're at this place in David's life, this moment where he is in this like short season of rest. There's a a calmness for the first time. And um, have you ever been like still long enough to where you can think finally? You know what I'm talking about? Um, where you're still and all these ideas start flooding in. I have, and all these ideas started flooding in, but I want to admit they weren't always good ideas. Um, I could remember one when I was in grad school in the Air Force, I had the opportunity to separate from the Air Force and, and get like an engineering job in Houston and it, was a little, it was, would have been a real departure from what I was doing. And uh, I was like, hey, Amanda, don't worry. Like, if this doesn't work out, we'll just move in with my parents. <laughs> and she's like, uh, what? Um, or I can remember during the, um, when I lived in Puerto Rico, after uh, Hurricane Maria, it was like during the reconstruction phase, I was a little bit burned out, a little bit worn out as a pastor. I told Amanda, I was like, I think I'm going to get out of ministry. I'm going to develop this relationship with this microbrewery. I'm going to private label their beer, and I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to use the proceeds to build houses in a squatter community. I know nothing about everything I just said. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, I've had some real doozies in my life, and I haven't even told you half of them. I am really excited that my bad ideas are not compiled in a book for everyone to read about. But I am extremely thankful that we get to read about David's bad idea. Not because I want to dog on David again. We've seen him do a lot of dumb things. He has bad ideas just like you and me. 
But I'm thankful that we get to read about it because we get to see how God responds to it. We get front row seats to how kind God is as he operates with people like us. And it's, it's more than that. God's response to David continues to be good for us, good for the whole world. And that goodness touches into this present moment that you and I are living in. And so we, as modern people, need this ancient story to encourage our hearts to enchant the world that we're living in and turn it, and, and, and turn it into something more. So in this story, we're going to see God take David's bad idea and turn it into an eternal covenant that brings coherency to the entire Bible. This passage, 2 Samuel 7, might arguably be one of the top five most important passages in the whole Bible in order for you to understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. This passage is the reason why Jesus from Nazareth gets the title Christ, the, the, the king, the, the anointed one. That's why we call him Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. So it's so important. But what I love most about this is not the theology, although it's so rich, but I love how it teaches us about the sweet and tender presence and favor of God towards strugglers like David and like us. So I'm gonna unpack this story under two headings for you note takers. First, we're gonna see how the presence of God flows one way. And then we're gonna see how the favor of God flows one way. So first, the presence of God flows one way. So immediately in verse one, the narrator sets up the context. He tells us that David lived in his house and that the Lord had given David rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Now, most of David's life had been pretty frenetic and frantic, but it appears that he's now on this like short period of repose, as I mentioned. And I, I imagine this felt like an incredible gift to David after 20 years of running and hiding and fighting. And so there he is. He finally has space to just think. And so in verse 2, he turns to this guy, Nathan the prophet. Now, Nathan in the Bible is a pretty rad guy. He, uh, we're going to learn he's extremely important, and quite frankly, he is a good friend to David. But up to this point in the whole Bible, we've never heard of him. He just appears out of nowhere. Now, I like Nathan a whole lot. Some of you are named Nathan, and some of you have named your children Nathan. But he is a human and this very first introduction to him, we'll see, is not his finest moment. He's had better. In, in verse 2 and 3, the text says that David turns to Nathan and says, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. In verse 3, Nathan says to, says to David the king, he says, Go, yeah, man, do all that's in your heart. Go for it. The Lord is with you. Now, listen, what David is saying is true. He indeed lives in this lovely cedar palace while the Ark of God, oh, Ark of the Covenant is in the, the tent, in this like mobile tent 
one that's likely like centuries old. Meanwhile, David's house was built as a gift. It was a tribute from the king of Tyre. Uh, The king of Tyre trying to ingratiate himself to David, sent quality cedar, sent carpenters, sent laborers. And it must have been this like amazing house. And you can just imagine David like walking out on his balcony, sipping some fine kingly wine, and overlooking this mobile tent, the tabernacle, flapping its dusty walls in the wind. Now, David literally hasn't even completely finished his thought, and I guess it was implied, but like Nathan's like, just follow your heart, dude. Like, go for it. All that's up in it, go for it. And you can see the logic, right? I mean, if David has a great house, then God should have one too, It's not, so it seems unreasonable for David to want to provide for his God. Virtually every ancient Near East culture had temples for their deities. And perhaps, you know, a beautiful permanent structure would be psychologically stabilizing and unifying for this newly emerging people, right? And so Nathan's right there with them to kind of like use the famous quote from the cult classic swingers. You know, Nathan essentially says, baby, you are so money, you don't even know it. Like, let's do this. But then Nathan gets a word that night from God. And God's address to Nathan is a really big deal. Outside of God speaking with Moses and giving him the law on the Sinai Peninsula, what we have here is the longest recorded direct address from God. This is clearly a really big deal. So in verse 5, God tells Nathan to go back to David and undo everything he just did. So through Nathan, God asks David, this, he asks him this powerful yet rhetorical question. He says, would you... Build me a house to dwell in? Me? And this is almost a painful question. You can almost imagine like David and Nathan feeling the weight of regret nodding up in their stomachs. And through Nathan, God says it in a couple different ways. He says, I never asked you for a house. I never asked anyone for a house. I have never even so much have, have uttered those words. Verse 6, since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And then verse 7, I have moved with all the people of Israel, not even to the judges of Israel. Not once have I ever asked you, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And notice he keeps repeating that word, moving. God is saying something really important in this moment. And he wants David to understand this. And God really wants you and me to understand this. He wants us to know that he is a God who goes with his people wherever they are. Whatever mountain they climb, whatever valley they pass through, whatever hardship they find themselves in, whatever cross they find themselves hanging on, he is a God 
who dwells and moves with us. And this is something like really beautiful, like that I just, as a church, want us to sit in. Like if you're here and you're just checking us out, just trying to figure out what Jesus has to say, or, or maybe you're just here trying to figure out what, what is God really like? I'm really glad that you're here today because this is so important for us to understand. The infinite God of the universe is not distant. He's not just like the proverbial watchmaker who winds up the universe and and then checks out. He's not just looking up from his social media account when he hears a bang or a scream like some distracted parent who just checks in every once in a while. Our God is absolutely committed to us. And he is one who is near and wants to build a living and true relationship with us. And mysteriously, he wants to make his home with us. And all of our gritty and dusty and dirty mistakes and doubts, and in our tearful joy and delight, and all of our ordinary and monotonous work, God absolutely wants to be there with us in those moments. And he moves with us. And I want you to know that that very presence of God is with us in this very moment. I know that in our disenchanted world, it will tempt us and seduce us into believing that what I am telling you right now is not true. And I know how pain and confusion and all of that that we experience Incline us to believe that God is not present. But listen, church, don't you dare believe that lie. In the fullest sense, in a way that God wanted you to see the invisible and to believe in the unfathomable reality of the incarnation where the infinite God robes himself in humanity, we see this reality fully in Jesus. The disciple John, in his gospel, in the very first chapter, he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is one of the most interesting Greek words where a noun is turned into a verb. You know what I'm talking about? It's like um, adulting, right? Like adult is a, is a noun, but we use it as a verb. Like I'm gonna, I need to go adult tonight, Right? John is doing something syntactically, just like that. He's saying that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt, he tabernacled among us. In Jesus, God has pitched his tent so that he could be with us wherever we are, even in the dirt and the muck and the confusion And when we're just flapping in the wind and rattled, he is there. And you can't understand Christianity 
unless you understand this, because you and I, we don't live in the clouds. We live in this physical world, and our, and our bodies are real, and the places that we go to are dangerous and not always safe. And you have to be certain that the immediate presence of God through his spirit is enjoined to our flesh and blood, giving us real comfort, real joy, and real resources of peace. So much of this entire service is organized in its liturgy to convince you that God is with us right now. But listen, you need to know that what I am saying is also true Monday through Saturday. And so through practices and rhythms and disciplines, we all need to regularly celebrate and practice God's presence. That's why we teach all of these rhythms of grace and these disciplines. That's how comes scripture reading, solitude, prayer. These are our ways to be still before a God who is there. These practices keep us dialed in to this absolute truth that we are always in the presence of God, the quorum Deo, the living before the face of God. It provides a mindfulness of his presence that you need to be certain of. And if we were to all do this as a people, as a church, or as a family, and as individuals, Church, we would all be so strengthened in our faith to live in his presence. David, with honorable intentions, no doubt, wanted to build God a house so that he could go and visit him from time to time. But he misunderstood. God was always with him. Because the presence of God flows one way. See, you and I can leave the presence. We can come and go in the presence of of other people. But for God, that is not so. The presence of God is unbreaking. And God was with David. And that's true for you and me, church. So there's more in this precious story that we need to uncover So I began by helping us understand how the presence of God flows one way, but we also see how the favor of God flows one way. So let's get back to our story. God responds to David's idea by asking, you are going to build me a house? Now, now because God responds this way, it gives the reader the impression that David understood this idea like as if he were doing God a solid, right? Like as if David would be doing God a favor by building him a house. Now listen, guys, carefully. That's not how favor works in God's economy. And that might, this might be the most precious thing I tell you today. <laughs> Let me explain. So God very patiently helps David to see this. In verse 8, he reminds David, saying, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. Right? So sheep herder 
to prince, like rags to riches here. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name. Now notice that God is always the subject. I took you. I have been with you. I will do these things for you. That is how life works. That's how God relates with us as followers of Jesus. The grace and favor of God flows one way from him to us. It's always God. It's always God. He called us. He forgave us. He healed us. He makes us look more like Jesus. And he will be the one who finishes this whole job and even heals the whole world. And on that day, there will be this great banquet with him. And guess what? It will be God who will provide the food and the drink. See, we're just the recipients of his gracious invitation and provision. Our life with God is all grace from beginning to end. Now, I want you to believe what I'm telling you because it, if you believe it and bury it in your heart, it can be so spiritually transforming. I really believe this is the kind of thing that can just set you free to be a kind person, a forgiving person, a gentle person, a person who believes faithfully. And my guess is, is that like you're hearing me right now and you might even think to yourself, Ronnie, I get it. I, I've heard this. You're not, saying, you're not saying anything new. Is that me? Is that me? I don't know what I'm doing. You're not saying anything new, Ronnie. And I know that you're hearing me right now. I know you're hearing me, but the reality is I wonder if your heart can believe it. We are always walking across a floor of eggshell, very close to break, breaking through it, only to land in the lie that we have to earn God's favor and grace. Or maybe you think you just have to do stuff for God so that you can keep his favor. And if I'm being honest with you, I jump into the pool of earning God's favor all the time. And when I get into this cycle of obligation and debt, it really amounts to me running around and pretending and faking and manipulating. And then all I am left with is this profound spiritual anxiety that is eating me up. Does any of that sound familiar to you? When I'm in that cycle of debt and obligation, I ultimately feel tired and even angry. And the worst part about this, that while I'm working for God, I find it so hard to actually love him. And then I find it almost impossible to love my neighbor and my family from a place of just simply seeking their good. The favor of God always flows one way. And we're not doing God any favors. That's not how the thing even works. 
And like David, we probably need to hear this over and over again. It's always God who is the agent working to make us look more like Jesus. He's the one working in us to help us put away all of these harmful patterns of living. He's the one expanding our hearts to truly love our neighbors without agendas. It's always God who is doing the work. We don't earn this. We can only receive it. We only receive it through the open hearts of repentance and faith because favor runs one way. And we need to receive this word from God, Denver Prez. Would you allow the fruit of repentance and faith to put you in the very delicate and vulnerable position of being totally out of control and squarely under the mercy of God. That that's the only thing in your line of sight. Let me quickly conclude with perhaps the most breathtaking part of this whole passage. So quickly to recap, through Nathan, God teaches David about his presence and favor and how they flow one way. He's reminding David how grace works in his life, but perhaps the most mind-warping part of all of it is that he's not even done teaching David about his grace. Like God is like flipping this whole thing around. This all started, right, because David had this big idea. He wanted to build God a house. And then now, in verse 11, God says, I will build a house for you, David. Like he's flipping the whole script. God here is like employing this play on words, right? Verse, we understand because of verse 12 that God is promising David a house, a dynasty. He's going to make his kingdom sure, and he's going to make his kingdom eternal. And through David, God is building a throne that will be unbreakable, And God will relate to this dynasty of kings in a profound, mysterious, but personal way. Verse 14 says, I will be to him a father. He's speaking to the king. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. A son of David will rule over God's people forever. This is like grace and favor unlike anything that we have ever seen. And not just for David, but for you and for me. David, like, right, as a king, he has so many responsibilities, but perhaps the most important thing that a king can do, and not David only, but all of the kings of Israel that would come after him, the most important role of a king is to be a witness to God's kingship over his people. And so what we see here is this promise of this enduring king and the weight of the beauty of this promise falls to us and it falls to our children. That's how come in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, 
he's going to reference 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is in Romans 1 when he says that Jesus Christ was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's what we call the Davidic covenant. That is why the Old and New Testament are wrapped together in this bow of radical grace. Now, there's no way that David could have had his mind, his mind been able to work out all of these details or understood all of what it meant. But we know that his own dynasty would just be a placeholder for the eternal son of God, the true king who rules over us and who rules the world, who rules you with power and grace. And this is David that he's talking to, this fumbling former sheep herder whose life is mired in so much brokenness. He wanted to build a house for God. And he says, God says, wrong. I do the building around here. I will build a house for you. And the dynasty of that grace falls to us. Without you or me ever doing anything about it, to ever even be able to earn or deserve it. And like, what do you do with that reality of grace? What do you do with that? Verse 18, David walks over, leaves his cedar palace, walks over to the dusty, rugged tabernacle. It's probably shaking in the wind a little bit. He sits in front of it, probably looking at the Ark of the Covenant. And he allows it to orient his heart to the presence and the favor once again. And in that moment of clarity, he has a better thought this time. David recognizes this unlikely grace, that, this unlikely grace of God that he didn't have to earn. In fact, he never could have earned it. And he whispers the only words that make any sense when you come to grips with the fact that you are living under God's sheer grace. He says, who am I? Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house? You've brought me this far. Verse 21, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, Verse 22, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you. Denver Prez, my prayer for all of us is that that would be you and me. Every single day of our lives, that the favor and presence of God would hush us. It would hush us into the sacred humility. Not resentment towards God, but the sacred humility and awe of him. 
And when we're mindful of that, and when it characterizes us every day, when we see God's favor and presence all around us, wherever we find ourselves, even if we're hanging on a cross, you will be surprised at what those resources of grace will provide for you in that moment. Amen. Amen.